Let me encourage us to remain standing as we come uh, to God's Word. We'll be looking uh, in our Advent series this year at the first few chapters uh, of Luke's Gospel. And this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You can find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you if you haven't brought one with you. And um, uh, as uh, just before we come to God's Word, I want to give a word of congratulations to the USA for a tie on Friday. Well done. Um, and just to clarify, our family now being um, sort of dual, we stood for both national anthems. So. <laughs> anyway, let's come to the Word of God. Let's hear God's Word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent uh, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Christmas, of course, is a cultural phenomenon uh, right across the globe. Uh, There there, there are obviously Christians celebrate Christmas, but Christmas is celebrated by many people of of many different faiths or none. Um, One indicator of this is that in the United States, uh, just in the United States, uh, 30 to 35 million Christmas trees are sold every year. That's uh, just one little data point of the, of the cultural um, um, breadth of uh, the phenomenon of Christmas. And, and, and Christmas, uh, as we'll be considering over the next uh, few weeks in our Advent series, uh, we'll obviously be looking at the, the Christian claims around Christmas uh, the, the Christian claims Christmas is the Christ Mass. It, it comes, the word Christmas comes from uh, the medieval uh, worship service that took place on Christmas Day, which was, of course, a Mass, uh, which is the last word in Latin of the medieval uh, worship service. Um, and it was a Christ Mass. And so Christmas is uh, the celebration of, of Christ, that is the claim. Uh, the biblical claim that we'll be considering this morning and over the next few weeks, uh, that Jesus is uh, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was appointed uh, from uh, long ago in the Old Testament to be born as the Son of God and live and then die and then uh, rise again for the salvation of all who will believe. That's the Christ Mass. Now, uh, every year, There's a lot of confusion as to, and it's important that we make this distinction as we consider Christmas, can you believe it? uh, We're not defending the Christmas traditions, the cultural Christmas. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Christmas trees and various colors, red is often, or green, uh, and and there are all sorts of traditions, uh, Santa Claus and the reindeer and all that that have grown up around Christmas. We're not seeking to defend that, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, that Christmas tradition has its own historical origins. Uh, it was uh, the Pope Julius I in the 4th century who first declared uh, December the 25th as the date on which Jesus was born. Uh, we 
the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what day Jesus is born. It's not really concerned with that. It's concerned with who he was and who he is. Um, and uh, uh, we know where he was born, Bethlehem. The Bible tells us that. It doesn't tell us what day he was born. Pope Julius I declared it December the 25th, and there are different explanations why he chose that date. Uh, one explanation is that the Annunciation, that is the, the, the angel Gabriel saying to Mary that you're going to give uh, birth to a baby as, as a virgin, the Annunciation, happened about nine months, uh, it's thought, before that. And so Pope Julius I logically then decided that Jesus must have been born about, uh, about the 25th of December. That's one possible reason that he chose that date. Another possible reason, which is also fairly likely, is that because across cultures uh, in the northern hemisphere, around the world, uh, because uh, in, it, there's always been a celebration uh, in December that, that month, um, of uh, the, the around the winter solstice, when one day um, is uh, the shortest day is past and the days begin to lengthen across human history in the northern hemisphere, there have been celebrations around that time, and indeed in the in the Roman Empire there was a celebration uh, at that time, and it's possible then that the early church decided that that to to um, uh, those, those celebrations, how should we put it, um, had a certain extreme party kind of feel to them. And the church decided, well, we're going to sort of embrace the celebration, but turn it to a good thing, the celebration of the Christ, the Christ, the Christ Mass, which is a perfectly legitimate approach. Though that, of course, even within Christian history has had its controversies. I mean, for instance, uh, the Puritans at the time of Oliver Cromwell in, in uh, Britain actually banned Christmas because of its pagan origins. If you, uh, it wasn't um, particularly good marketing for the Puritan movement to ban Christmas, um, but that's what they did. And uh, the same actually happened in Boston uh, in the 17th century here in, uh, in, in America. Uh, it was actually illegal to celebrate Christmas uh, for a while. Uh, uh, Christians made it illegal uh, because they, uh, they thought it had pagan origins, some of it. But we're not, we're not talking about all that, like the, the trees and the, the, the color. And it's fine to have that. Uh, we don't want to be bar humbug, kind of Scrooge about you know, fun family times together. But what we're talking about when we say Christmas, can you believe it, is uh, the Bible's claim that Jesus was born of a virgin as the Son of God, that he lived, uh, that he died on a cross uh, for the sins of the world, uh, taking uh, our punishment that we all deserved upon him so that we could live free and forgiven, that he rose again from the dead to declare his victory, and that that gospel is proclaimed now to the ends of the earth. That's what we're talking about when we say Christmas uh, can you, uh, can you uh, believe it? And what we're going to do this morning as we begin this series in Luke's gospel is uh, we're going to consider, first of all, how Luke uh, believes that what he's writing here should be persuasive to Theophilus. That's, uh, and we'll consider what that means. So first it's going to be what he's saying to Theophilus and how that should persuade Theophilus. And then we'll consider how that can persuade us uh, today in the 21st century. So first of all, Theophilus. Who was Theophilus? What is Luke writing to him and why is he writing? First of all, who was Theophilus? We're told, uh, verse 3, 
that he is most excellent Theophilus. Uh, There's been a lot of conversation down through the years as to who Theophilus was. It's possible that the name Theophilus is a code name. It literally means lover of God. And it's possible, given in those days, to be a Christian uh, would uh, be deeply controversial, uh, leave you open to persecution, that for a public document like this, a book published in the ancient world, um, to be named would put you in danger. So it's possible it's a code name for an individual. Uh, Some people even think that Luke is using the style of uh, ancient historical writings and that Theophilus was a a, a literary uh, device rather than the actual individual. Myself, I think that he was a real individual, Theophilus. Uh, There's no reason to doubt that that I can see. And I think that his name probably was actually Theophilus. Uh, It was a good name for him, as we'll see, uh, lover of God. We're also told that he is most excellent. Why are we told he's most excellent? Well, the word in uh, the Greek there is a word that was used as an honorary title for a certain class of individuals. In in the ancient Roman world, there are uh, classes, and there are more or less aristocratic classes. And this particular class of individual was called, in English, most excellent, it was a, a, an equestrian class, a knightly class. The equivalent, perhaps, at least in British culture, would be to call someone sir. It was an honorary title that indicated you were part of a certain class. So uh, today there are various well-known figures who are called sir. Um, for instance, Mick Jagger, if you can believe it, is Sir Mick Jagger. Um, uh, or Keith Getty, who's a friend of, of, of some of us here who's written a lot of uh, very well-known songs is, has been knighted, and he's now Sir Keith Getty. He's never asked me to call him that publicly, but now I have, Sir Keith. Um, uh, so similarly here, Theophilus is Sir Theophilus. Uh, but more than that, almost certainly he was a patron. That is, he was the one, uh, he was a knight, a sir, a most excellent, with the resources and the cultural, um, the cultural power to, to be a patron of this book that Luke is writing. So again, you've got to understand how books in the ancient world were published. You've got to imagine yourself back to this original context, how it's written for Theophilus, And how it would persuade him before we think how it would persuade us. And in the ancient world, books were published not like we publish them today. Um, There was no Crossway publishers. There was no Tyndale House publishers. There was no Baker Books or all these other publishers we have today. They didn't exist. In the ancient world, if you wanted to publish a book, it was very useful to have a patron who would help you to publish it. Usually what you would do is you'd write out a little bit of it and then you'd gather some of your friends in your house and you'd have a reading to your friends and if your friends liked it, then you'd take that as a good sign. You'd write some more of the book and you'd continue reading it to them. And if they liked it, then uh, you would get a scribe to copy it and they would purchase uh, copies of the book. And then if it was going well, you'd take it to a bookstore. There were bookstores in the ancient world and uh, you deposit it in the bookstore and there would be scribes so that anyone could go in and um, ask for a copy of your book and the scribes would, uh, would duly copy it and you, you purchase it and that's how it worked in the ancient world and there would be a patron so it seems like 
in the Christian community, because it was an a, a increasingly persecuted community, they probably didn't do it exactly the way it was done in pagan culture at the time. But this book was intended to be a genuine historical published account uh, with a patron, most excellent Theophilus. And Luke is indicating that he has that kind of cultural power. Most excellent Theophilus, he's the patron. That's who he is. What is then, so who, what, and why as we think of Theophilus, what then is Luke saying to Theophilus? Well, he tells us uh, in uh, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, that's a very important point. I want you to underline it, if not literally in your Bibles, uh, at least in your mind, and it's, there's no, uh, 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 but eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, uh, Luke says, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So what is he doing? There's a lot there that's packed in to the original Greek. Basically what Luke is saying is, I have researched this right from the top all the way to the end, the finest details. It is a well-researched historical account, Theophilus. I've begun with eyewitnesses. A very important point. What he's saying is, I've started with those who actually saw Jesus. I didn't make it up. I went and interviewed them. I did my research. Uh, I heard it myself from the eyewitnesses. History, to be verifiable, needs to be based upon genuine eyewitness accounts. Not just one, several. The eyewitnesses, they saw it. And I asked them. And they told me, I've researched it right from the top, from the eyewitnesses, all the way down, he's saying, to the finest detail. So it's a well-researched document that you can trust, uh, Theophilus. But then he also says, to write an orderly account for you. Now that phrase has had lots of conversation down through the years through scholars who looked at Luke's gospel. In my view, the way to understand what Luke is saying there about an orderly account is to compare it with how he uses that word elsewhere. So Luke uh, is the first in a two-volume work of historical origins. Luke's writing about what Jesus began began to do and teach, And then, in his second volume, Acts, what he's continuing to do and teach through his spirit, by his word, as the gospel is then proclaimed to all all nations. And you can look at the beginning of Acts, and you'll see there that he's also writing to most excellent Theophilus again. It's his two-volume work. And in Acts, and if you have a Bible open, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. If If you don't, it's fine. I'll read it for you. Luke uses the same word, orderly, again, that explains why... Uh, what Luke is trying to achieve when he says he's writing an orderly account. And just to give you a little bit of context, Peter, one of the early Christian leaders, the apostle Peter, had been accused for breaking a taboo at the time in the Jewish culture, which was to eat with non-Jewish people. And the church needed to get its mind around the fact that according to Jesus, the gospel now goes to all nations, not just Jews, but all nations. And uh, Peter needed, uh, had therefore preached the gospel to Cornelius, a centurion, and to other Gentiles, and this had caused a controversy. So Peter goes back to Jerusalem, 
to answer the controversy. And what he does, chapter 11, verse 4, we're told Peter began, he's beginning to explain himself, Peter began and explained it to them in order. So what he's saying is you've heard lots of um, rumors, Theophilus. Yes, Theophilus, you've heard uh, the preaching, perhaps. Uh, You've heard about the Christian story. He obviously was enough of a lover of God to be a patron, and he wanted to find out the real thing. Uh, Theophilus, uh, you've been on YouTube, and uh, you've uh, listened to the YouTube uh, people. Uh, Theophilus, you've uh, been on Wikipedia and you've seen what Wikipedia says. But, Theophilus, I have researched everything right from the beginning, right until the end. It's based upon eyewitness accounts, and I'm going to set it to you in order. I'm going to make order out of the confusion. I'm going to tell the story in an orderly way so you can see how it all fits together and how the Christian claim that those early apostles preached that Jesus was uh, the Son of God, that he lived and died, born of a Virgin Mary, lived and died and rose again, that, that message they preach, I'm going to show you how I've researched it from the beginning, and I'm going to give you an orderly account. I'm going to tell it in order so it now fits, so your mind is no longer confused. I'm going to give you the facts, just the facts, in order, so you can see it for yourself. And what Luke is saying, therefore, by writing uh, to his patron, and therefore obviously wanting it to be read by many, many others as well, is that uh, this most excellent Theophilus, who is an open-minded individual, he's a lover of God, he must be interested enough to at least um, give some resources for the book to be published. But he doesn't yet have certainty. He's not yet sure. And this then is why uh, Luke is writing. So we've had who, um, we've explained most excellent Theophilus. We've had what, this orderly account, research from the beginning based upon eyewitnesses. Now why? The purpose, the reason why Luke is writing, he tells us, is so that Theophilus might have certainty. Now again, that's an interesting word in the original and has an interesting idea that has been much discussed. What What is being said, in my view, is that Theophilus, though he was a lover of God and believed enough in the Christian message to want to find out more and have this book published, he wasn't yet certain. And the image is he was wobbly. Uh, And Luke is writing so he wouldn't stumble. Uh, No longer wobble but have a firm conviction. He would really believe. Of course, that's a game changer. And as we transition now to think about what it would mean for us, would it be a game changer for Theophilus faced with the controversy of believing in Jesus in the ancient world? And by the way, as people think about our post- postmodern culture they often think well we're, the church today is facing a whole different new environment of course that isn't really the case what we're really facing is a neo-paganism that is very like the early church and if you want to find out how to answer the difficulties and problems of our day what you need to do is read the bible and find out how they were answered their day in fact our culture is coming much more like the ancient world's culture in all sorts of ways And so Theophilus is going to be 
Luke says, an open-minded, a noble-minded individual who loves God, like Theophilus, what I'm writing, Luke says, is sufficient for you to really believe, not to wobble. As I say, that then is a game changer. Uh, If we really believe, well, of course, uh, we uh, go on missions around the world because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, is the way to be saved. So, of course, and his, his gospel goes out to all nations, all people of every background, every color of skin, every class. Of course, we're committed to that because we really believe. Of course we come to church, even when it's cold outside, (laughs) because we really believe this is the body of Christ. Uh, The Spirit of Christ is among us. We've come to encounter Christ. Of course we're committed, because we really believe. Of course we get behind all the various endeavors of the church, because we really believe. We're certain. It's a game changer. Of course, the question is, is what Luke has written sufficient for us to have that certainty today? He's saying it is sufficient for you, Theophilus, then what about now? Nowadays, uh, there tend to be, and we don't have the time to get into all this this morning. We'll be exploring it more over the next few weeks in our series, Christmas, Can You Believe It? Um, But there tend to be three categories that prevent people being certain Millions and millions of people in America, I think the vast majority of people in America believe in God in some way or other. And millions and millions of people, if you ask them, would say they're Christians. But they're not certain. They're vague about it. And uh, the reasons why tend to fall into three categories, in in, in my view. Uh, There's a textual uh, issue. There's a Um, a rational issue and a moral issue. And as I say, I only have time to touch on each of these three. But the textual issue uh, could be well summarized by one person, a well-known scholar, who has been going around uh, saying that the Bible never actually claims that Jesus is God. You could only get away with saying that in an age where people are fairly ignorant of the Bible. Because the Bible frequently claims that. Indeed, it's really its whole point. As one example of that, uh, if you have your Bibles open, look at uh, the Annunciation, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. We'll be be looking at this more in subsequent weeks, but just as a foretaste. The angel answered her. uh, Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Well, there you have it. The Son of Man is a man. The Son of God is God. And uh, we could go on and on talking about various places where the Bible says this. Jesus himself Claimed, it said in John's, uh, John's gospel, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And the I am is the translation of the Old Testament word for Jehovah or Yahweh. He's saying, before Abraham was, I am. I'm, I'm Yahweh, he's saying. And the hearers knew he was saying that because they immediately tried to kill him for what would have been blasphemy if it was not true. Now, Jesus claimed to be God, and the Bible frequently claims that Jesus 
is God. We'll be considering more of that as we go on, but there's that textual uh, objection. There's also a rational objection that many people have. Okay, so the Bible says that, but how on earth can I believe it? Many people struggle with the virgin birth. How is it possible that uh, uh, a virgin could have a baby, number one? How is it possible that uh, there could be an incarnation, fully God and, uh, and fully man? And people have rational objections to it. And again, we could talk about that at great length, and we'll be discussing it through the subsequent weeks. And I encourage you to keep on coming back and bring your friends. But as a foretaste of what we'll be considering, it's important to realize that to claim that Jesus is fully God and fully man is not a logical contradiction. There's nothing logically contradictory about it. It's not saying... um, Uh, this is both an apple and not an apple. It's not a logical contradiction, nor is it really a paradox. It is mind-blowing. Theologically, we would say it is ultimately beyond our comprehension, but not beyond our apprehension. That is, it is above our reason, but not against our reason. And of course, that's exactly what we would expect uh, when we think of uh, who God is. We would expect that the reality of God revealed in the Scriptures would be mind-blowing. If I can contain God in the finite confines of my mind, then whatever that is, it's not God. By definition, he's infinite. And the truth about God should point in the direction of infinity and eternity. And of course, the incarnation does that. Oh, by the way, don't get hung up on the idea that somehow in the ancient world they didn't know where babies came from. People have known where babies have come from for a long, 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 long time. And, of course, Joseph and Mary knew full well, otherwise they wouldn't be so shocked by it. But actually, for many people today, certainly for uh, the younger generation today, the biggest barrier is actually moral. So if you go on YouTube and you go to Wikipedia or you get involved with the conversations online, you'll find increasingly, commonly, it is alleged that uh, any religion, but even Christianity, is hate-filled. The, the Christian movement, the Christian church, is against certain kinds of people. That there's an anger to it. And so that's a moral uh, issue that many people have today. And uh, to answer that, I point you to Luke chapter 2. And uh, the angel is now speaking to the shepherds, which, of course, we'll get to later in this series. But as a foretaste, chapter 2, verse 10, what did the angel say? The angel said to them, fear not. What a word from God for us today. Our cultures, our nations, individuals are filled with fear. But the authentic hallmark of Christianity is fear not. 
Why? I bring you good news of great joy. That is biblical Christianity. Good news, great joy. For who? All people. We're all broken. We're all sinners. Here's good news. There's a Savior. Good news of great joy. That is the authentic hallmark of real biblical Christianity. Fear not, good news, great joy. Now you say, well, I've experienced something else. I've experienced uh, abuse or trauma or great difficulty or, or sadness among churchianity. And if that's the case, and I've certainly talked to people for whom that is a reality down through the years. If that's the case for you, you have my deepest empathy. I think there are a few things that are more difficult uh, than uh, finding that the hope of God, as it's presented, is actually hateful, hate-filled. You have my deepest empathy, but I would say this to you. Do not throw the baby out with the bath water. Uh, The hallmark of authentic Christianity is fear not, good news, great joy. Uh, look, Look at it like this. Here's another way to look at it. If you are a business person and you're running a, a store of some kind or other and someone buys something from your store and they, they purchase it with, I, I don't know, a, a $20 bill or something like that. And they go out of the store and they bought whatever they bought and then afterwards you look rather closely at the $20 bill and you realize that it's fake. Oh, wow. The guy just slipped me a fake $20 bill. I mean... That's, that's not great. So I, I, what do you do about that? Right, maybe you call the police on the guy. Maybe you just throw it away. Maybe you're you know, just annoyed. Or, here's what you do not do. You do not throw away all the other $20 bills you have. Why? Because they're authentic. No one ever makes a counterfeit of something unless the real thing exists and has value. The reason why people make counterfeit uh, money is because money is valuable. And the reason why there are counterfeit kinds of Christianity is because the real thing has eternal, um, fear not, good news, great joy, value. So receive that. Well, Theophilus and people today, you may have certainty in the things that have been taught. Why? Because of the facts that he's going to set in order. Let me close with this slightly whimsical but true story from a little later in church history. It's a man called Athanasius who was an early church leader uh, in um, the eastern part of what was then the empire, the Roman Empire. And Athanasius is famous for defending the truth of what we'll be talking about over the next few weeks or so, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And as is typical when you're in a controversy, as Athanasius was about this with all sorts of people, uh, those who are your enemies attack you for other things. It's the standard approach. 
If you don't like what someone's saying theologically, they tend to attack you for other things. I don't like what he wears, I don't like his style, but the real issue is what is being said, what is being defended. And Athanasius, standing up for this profoundly important truth that Jesus is fully God, uh, was, uh, uh, became a figure of great controversy, and there were all sorts of false accusations made about him. Some of them were, frankly, quite bizarre. Uh, and the accusation that perhaps was most bizarre was that Athanasius had murdered a man, and not only murdered him, he cut off his hand, and Athanasius was using that hand in witchcraft, if you can believe it. But this became quite a serious accusation. So what did Athanasius decide to do? Just the facts. He went to the court, which was meeting in what is now Lebanon, but at the time was Tyre, T-Y-R-E, Syria, and appeared before the court, and in order to prove that he hadn't murdered the man nor cut off his hand and used it in witchcraft, what did Athanasius do? He stood in the court with the individual right there. And in a moment of high drama, not only was this other individual who's called Arsenius, and not only was he standing right next to Athanasius, he was wearing a rather long cloak, hiding his hands. And so you can imagine that moment in the court. Not only did I not kill him, he's there, but neither did I cut off his hands. And the Arsenius then presumed to go, see? Those are the facts. And as we get into Luke's gospel, that's, as I say, in a slightly whimsical, humorous way, what Luke is hoping to achieve. Show us the facts. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray that by your spirit it would live within us. We thank you for Luke and his carefulness to research things from the beginning, from eyewitnesses. And we thank you for Theophilus, uh, this lover of God, who was open-minded to hear the truth. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we too might have certainty about the things we have been taught. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.